This is the second day of this uh, February 2020 four-day session. <clears throat> I'm going to continue reading uh, from this book of talks from Ajahn Chah. It's entitled Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away, and it's translated by Paul Breiter. And we're going to pick up on a chapter um, <clears throat> It says, entitled, It's Not Permanent, It's Not Sure. <clears throat> and Ajahn Chah says, We focus on the here and now Dharma. This is where we can let go of things and resolve our difficulties. Right now in the present, because the present moment contains both cause and result. The present is the fruit of the past. It is also the cause of the future. That we are sitting here right now is the result of what we have done in the past and what we do now will become the cause for what we experience in the future. So the Buddha taught to discard the past and discard the future. Saying discard doesn't really mean that we throw anything away but that we remain in this single point of the present where the past and future come together. So the word discard is just a way of speaking. What we want to do is be aware of the present where causes and results are to be found. We look at the present and see continuous arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. return to the present moment uh, when, when we lose it when we're, when we're caught up in the past or the future of course there's also the uh, option of drifting into fantasies uh, it's always because we're holding on to something we're clinging to something and of course clinging can mean grasping or it can also mean protecting ourselves, pushing away, freezing up. So whenever we return to the present, it's by relinquishing that clinging, by letting go of it. Then we come back to this moment where everything is alive. Ajahn Chah says, I keep saying this, but people don't really take it to heart. Phenomena appear in the present moment, and they are not stable or reliable. People don't look into this very much. Whatever comes about, I will say, oh, this is not permanent, or this is uncertain. <clears throat> this is extremely simple. Whatever occurs is impermanent and uncertain. But not seeing or understanding this, we become confused and distressed. In what is impermanent, we see permanence. In what is uncertain, we see certainty. I explain it, but people don't get it. And they end up living their lives in endless pursuit of things. We objectify everything can <clears throat> objectify our practice. 
see it as a thing, see it as a certain way. So common to think, okay, right now I'm so stuck, uh, nothing's coming so easily to me, flat, discouraged. But it's uncertain. By uncertain, we're saying it can change. It's not the way we picture it. We always picture things as being fixed and stable, but they're not. Everything is changing at incredible speed. Everything is in motion. Nothing is solid. To understand this is to understand the Dharma. He says, really, if you reach the point of peace, you will be here at this place I am talking about, this point in the present. Whatever appears, any form of happiness or suffering, you will see that it is uncertain. This very uncertainty is itself the Buddha, because uncertainty is the Dharma, and the Dharma is the Buddha. But most people believe the Buddha and the Dharma to be something external to themselves. But what we're studying, actually, what we're, what we're doing in practice it's, it's more basic than even using terms like Buddha and Dharma. It's us. It's what we are. Looking into this awareness. Letting go of our concerns, our worries. and relinquishing our grasping. He says, when the mind starts to realize that all things without exception are by their very nature uncertain, the problems of grasping and attachment start to decrease and wither away. If we understand this, the mind starts to let go and put things down, not grasping onto things, and attachment comes to an end. When it comes to an end, one must reach the Dharma. There is nothing beyond this. <clears throat> because the Dharma is not outside. It's not something that we get. But the most you could say is it's something that we uncover, something that we've always had. Sakwan says, how near the truth, yet how far we seek, like one in water crying, I thirst. <clears throat> he goes on, when we meditate, this is what we want to realize. We want to see impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. <clears throat> now these three are also termed uh, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. It's the three characteristics of existence. The fact that everything is subject to change, nothing is solid. The fact of suffering or unsatisfactoriness. Things are never as we want them. Because they're changing, they're never going to stay. When, we, when, we, when the wheel comes around and we've hit the trifecta, it's not going to stay that way for long. And finally, not self. There is no little man or little woman. 
Our image of ourself is a delusion. He says this all begins, understanding these three characteristics, this all begins with seeing uncertainty. When we see it perfectly clearly, then we can let go. When we experience happiness, we see that this isn't uncertain. When we experience suffering, we see that this is uncertain. We get the idea that it would be good to go to some place and we realize it's uncertain. We think it would be good to stay where we are and we realize this is uncertain too. We see that absolutely everything is uncertain and we will live at ease. Then we can stay where we are and be comfortable or we can go somewhere else and be comfortable. This makes me think of the whole phenomenon of analysis paralysis, our inability to make decisions what if I pick this? What if I pick that? In the end, it often matters very, very little. Of course, there's true. You could go down the wrong road, and that's where the safe falls on your head. But <clears throat> even, even granting that, uh, because we don't know what will happen, because it's uncertain, there's no need for us to tie ourselves up. We need to, when we make a decision, obviously we need to, get whatever input is appropriate, and then we just have to pick. And uh, there, is, there isn't really a wrong or right. Whatever it is, we're going to go down that road, and that's going to be what we experience. That's going to be our present. What good is it to second-guess ourselves? If only I'd taken that job and not this job. If only I'd gone with her and not with her. says, doubts will end like this. They will end by the method of practicing in the present. There's no need to be anxious about the past because it is gone. Whatever happened in the past has arisen and ceased in the past, and now it's finished. We can let go of concern about the future because whatever will occur in the future will occur and cease in the future. We've all heard this so many times. It's one version where the Buddha says, forget the past, it's gone. Forget the future, it's not here. Forget the present, I didn't get you one. <laughs> when the lay supporters come to make offerings here, they recite, in the end, may we finally reach nirvana in a future time. When or where that is, they don't really know. It's so very far away. They don't say here and now. They say sometime in the future. It's always somewhere, sometime, there, not here, only there. In the next life, it will also be there. And in future lives, it will be there. So they never arrive because it's always there. It's like people inviting an old monk to receive alms food in a village and saying, please, venerable sir, Go for alms in the village over there. Then when he has walked to the distant village, they say, Please, venerable one, receive your arms over there, your alms over there. He keeps on walking, but wherever he arrives, they tell him, Please receive your alms food over there. The poor old fellow will never see a morsel of food. He just keeps on walking there and over there, and nothing comes of it. We tend to be like this. We never say here and now. Why not? 
Is there something wrong with the present? It's because we are still involved with things. We still delight in the worldly and don't dare to give it up. So we prefer to let it be sometime in the future. Just like someone egging on the old monk with talk of a meal offering, please, sir, travel over there for your alms. So he goes in search of the place over there where he can find alms food to sustain himself, but it is never there and he never receives any food. Let's talk about here and now in the present. Practice can really be done in the present. We don't need to look to some time in the future. Rather than becoming anxious about anything, we just look at the here and now dharma and see uncertainty and impermanence. Then Buddha mind, the one who knows, comes to be. It is developed through this knowledge that all things are impermanent. You could say it's developed through non-clinging through non-abiding. Through mu, through the breath. Develop the taste for letting go, for opening up. So easy for practice to be habitual grasping, trying to get somewhere, get something, measure up, get into the habit of monitoring ourselves. Not too concentrated right now, but I had a couple rounds where I think I was getting a little deeper and just forget it. That's gone. Right now, this breath. It's really a relief. We don't have to size things up. We don't have to atone for anything. We just need to come alive in this moment. And coming alive just means to have our attention with what's right in front of us. Don't have to look very far for it. He says, this is where knowledge is gained. Samadhi, the collectedness of the mind, can be developed here. There is the peace of living in the forest. There is calm when the eye doesn't see and the ear doesn't hear. The mind is pacified of seeing and hearing, but it is not pacified of the defilements. The defilements are still there, but at that time they aren't appearing. It's like water with sediment in it. When it's still, it's clear, but when something stirs it, the dirt rises up and clouds it. You are the same in your practice. When you see forms, hear sounds, have disagreeable experiences, or have bodily sensations that are unpleasant, then you are disturbed. If these don't occur, you're comfortable. You're comfortable with the defilements. You might want to get something like a camera. If you get one, you feel happy. Until you have it, you won't be satisfied, and finally, when you're able to get it, there is some pleasure in that, that if it's stolen, you'll be upset. Your happiness is gone. So before you can get what you want, there is unhappiness. Then you get it, there is happiness. Then when it is gone, there is unhappiness again. The samadhi that comes from living in a peaceful environment is like that. There is happiness in being pleased by the tranquil state, 
but the happiness only goes so far because the mind is under the influence of desire for something that is changeable. After a while, it will be gone, and unhappiness will take its place, just as when a thief gets your camera. This is the peace of samadhi, the temporary peace of tranquility meditation. We have to look into this a little more deeply. Whatever we have will become a source of suffering when we lose it if we aren't aware of its impermanence. If we are aware of it, then we can make use of things without being burdened by them. This is a lesson that we learn the hard way, at least certainly for me. Finally get it, finally have the mind settle. And then you're surprised that all of a sudden everything has gotten stirred up again. But that's the way it is. Things are shifting. It's the way Sashin is. It's remarkable how most of us are sort of blindsided every single Sashin when we run into some of the difficulties in the early days, get into a state where we're flat or stale or discouraged. And it feels like it's endless. It feels like it's going to go on forever. But <clears throat> maybe this session will be the first one where it does go on forever. But most sessions, <laughs> most sessions, things change, things shift. It's, it's just a whole, it's a whole rhythm. Um, and it's not a rhythm we can necessarily predict, but it's one we can ride with. We can, f- each time we find ourselves losing contact with what's real, which is this moment and this breath, we can renew, we can come back. To do that patiently again and again is so valuable. It's what changes us. The fact that it's difficult is, is almost an advantage because doing this in the face of adversity when, it, when it's not what we want to do like to just float. We like to just coast. Let me get into a deep state and coast to the end of Sashin. That's never going to work. <clears throat> so thus the Buddha taught to look in the present and see the impermanence of body and mind of all phenomena as they appear and cease without grasping any of it. If we can do this, we will experience peace. This peace comes from, because of letting go. Letting go comes be, about because of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from contemplation of impermanence, suffering, and not self, the truth of experience and witnessing this truth in one's own mind. Seeing it for oneself. Seeing it in the nitty-gritty, in the little things of life. Impermanence, suffering, not self, the three characteristics of existence, we can make them into sort of exalted concepts, but it's really, it's, it's in the, the grainy particulars. Tweak our back, knee is hurting, can't seem to breathe smoothly, tension in the chest, so many things that can seem like obstacles when we see them outside, when we see them as separate. 
practicing like this, we are continuously seeing clearly within our own minds. Phenomena arise and cease. Ceasing there is new arising, arising there is ceasing. If we form attachment to what occurs, suffering comes about right there. If we are letting go, suffering will not come about. We see this in our own minds. There's a woman named uh, Byron Katie, some people have heard of her, who says, whenever you find yourself in discomfort or anxiety, any kind of negative state that comes over you, she calls it a compassionate alarm clock, telling you you're caught in the dream. You're not here. We can gain real certainty about the Dharma when meditating like this, and we can come to the point where all we have to do is be looking at our minds in the present. We let go of the past and the future and look in the present, and we see the three characteristics continuously and in everything. Walking, there is impermanence. Standing, there is impermanence. Sitting, there is impermanence. That's the inherent truth in things. If you are looking for certainty or permanence, you can only find it in things being this way and not changing into some other way. When your view matures like this, you will be at peace. You'll be at peace because you won't be grasping. You won't be flinching. <clears throat> he says, or do you think that by going to meditate on a lonely mountaintop, you'll have peace? <laughs> Reminds me of a story um, I had a friend, uh, Steve Carroll, he's passed away, but uh, we did a lot of sashin together back in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, he was, uh, he was really sort of felt he, he anyway, he felt it, that he was sort of a natural hermit. He was really enamored with sitting alone in the woods, and we did a lot of that together and, and separately. Anyway, this was a sashin, and uh, at some point, he decided that he would never get through his koan in Sashin. What he needed to do was to go up into the woods. And uh, <clears throat> being a man of action, he left Sashin and went to the airport, got a ticket, and flew to Boston. And then he was going to go up from Boston into uh, uh, New Hampshire. There was a cabin up there that he knew about, and uh, about nine miles in from the road. He was going to go there and uh, come to awakening. So in the, in the airport while he was there, um, just by happenstance perhaps, uh, somebody had a heart attack. And all of a sudden there was a crash cart and paramedics. And, and in all the excitement, all of a sudden he woke up and re realized, wait a minute, what have I done? And he knew he had to get back to Sashin, so he took a plane, turned right around, never left the airport, took a plane back to Rochester, caught a cab, told the guy, take me to Seven Arnold Park and step on it. And uh, he got there, and there was Keenheen going on, so he cut into the Keenheen line and uh, sat down. His mat was still there. I guess they weren't as quick as we are these days with <clears throat> removing mats if there's nobody in them. I sat down on his mat and then a little tap on his shoulder. 
come to Doksan. <laughs> Do you think that going to meditate on a lonely mountaintop you'll have peace? You may have peace for a while, but when the austerity of living there catches up with you, you'll start to feel hungry and exhausted. So you'll come down the mountain and head for town. Lots of good food and comforts there. But then you'll begin to think it's disturbing your practice. Better to go somewhere remote. Really, someone who suffers when living alone is foolish. Someone who suffers when living with others is foolish. It's like chicken turds. If you carry them around by yourself, they stink. If you keep them when you're among others, they also stink. You carry the rotten things with you. If we are astute, then we may be living around a lot of people and feel it isn't a peaceful environment, and that will be correct to some extent, but it still can be a cause for gaining wisdom. I developed some wisdom from having a lot of disciples. Lay people came in large numbers. Many monks came wanting to be disciples, and everyone had their own views and dispositions. I experienced a lot of different things, and I had to rise to the occasion. My capacity for patience and endurance was strengthened. To the extent that I could bear with it, I was able to keep practicing. Then all my experience became meaningful. This is like what Hakuin says about practicing in daily life in the marketplace. The power that comes from learning to focus the mind in those difficult circumstances is way more than is generated when conditions are ideal. There's really a place for both. For us, who are lay people, we've, who, who can make it to Sashin, we do have both. And hopefully, what we learn in Sashin, learning to let go of our concerns and afflictions, learning to be present, not to get caught up in time, or the past or the future, all of that, can be used in our daily lives. It's really what it's for. He says that all my experience became meaningful, but if we don't understand correctly, there is no resolution. Living alone will be good until we get fed up with it. Then we'll think it's better to live in a group. Having simple food will seem good. Then maybe having a lot of food will seem to be the right way. It goes on like this when we can't resolve our minds once and for all. Seeing that everything is unreliable, we will take all situations of lack or plenty as uncertain and not have attachment to them. You'll pay attention to the present moment wherever this body happens to be dwelling. Then staying will be okay. Traveling will be okay. Everything will be okay because we are focused on the practice of recognizing the way things really are. <clears throat> says, people say Ajahn Chah only talks about, quote, not certain. They get fed up with hearing this, and they run away from me. We went to listen to Ajahn Chah teach, but all he talked about was not certain. They can't bear to hear the same old thing anymore, so they leave. I guess they're going to look for some place where things will be certain, but they'll come back. Yeah, <clears throat> that's kind of the flavor of Ajahn Chah. It's not always easy to, to hear, uh, but it's right on point. 
Zen master Dogen famously said, this sustained exertion is not something that people of the world naturally love or desire, yet it is the last refuge of all. <clears throat> so this book is divided into sections on uh, the various character, three characteristics, among other things, the three characteristics of existence. And so we're going to move on now to suffering. <clears throat> uh, chapter is entitled Understanding Dukkha. It says, Dukkha sticks on the skin and goes into the flesh. From the flesh, it gets into the bones. It's like an insect on a tree that eats through the bark into the wood and then into the core until finally the tree dies. As we grow up, it gets buried deep inside. Our parents teach us grasping and attachment, giving meaning to things, believing firmly that we exist as a self-entity and that things belong to us. From our birth, that's what we are taught. <clears throat> I remember seeing this with my granddaughter all of a sudden at the table with mom and dad. She pointed to mom and said, Mommy. And then to dad and said, Daddy. And then to herself and said, Izzy. And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> Here we go. We hear this over and over again and it penetrates our hearts and stays there as our habitual feeling. We're taught to get things, to accumulate and hold on to them, to see them as important and as ours. This is what our parents know and this is what they teach us. So it gets into our minds, into our bones. When we take an interest in meditation and hear the teaching of a spiritual guide, it's not easy to understand. It doesn't really grab us. We're taught not to see and do things the old way, but when we hear this, it doesn't penetrate our hearts. So we sit and listen to the teachings, but it's often just sound entering the ears. It doesn't get inside and affect us. It's like we're boxing and we keep hitting the other guy, but he doesn't go down. We remain stuck in our self-view. The wise have said that moving a mountain from one place to another is easier than moving the conceit of self-view, this solid feeling that we really exist as some special individual. We can use explosives to level, level a mountain, and then move the earth, but the tight grasping of self-conceit, oh man, our wrong ideas and bad tendencies remain so solid and unbudging and we're not aware of them. So the wise have said that removing this view and turning wrong understanding into right understanding is about the hardest thing to do. <clears throat> it does happen in a gradual way. We can have a sudden insight and that can move the, the needle quite a bit but um, we also can just gradually through this practice through relinquishment through being where we actually are again and again we lighten up we become lighter things that used to bother us aren't as problematic things that were difficult to do, uh, suddenly they're not a problem. It's a change that comes gradually. Sometimes 
people don't even see it in themselves. They don't realize how much they've changed. It happens to a large extent in proportion to our willingness to bring the mind back, to be here, to be aware, to be attentive, to be awake. He says, for us who are worldly beings, that's putajana, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, that's just luck, putajana, to progress on to being virtuous beings, kalyanajana, kalyanajana, is not easy, nor is it easy to say. A putajana is one who is thickly obscured, who is dark, who is stuck deep in this darkness and obscuration. The Kalyana Jana has made things lighter. We teach people to lighten, but they don't want to do that because they don't understand their situation, their condition of obscuration. So they keep on drifting in their confused state. If we come across a pile of buffalo dung, we won't think it's ours and we won't want to pick it up. We will just leave it where it is because we know what it is. Such is what's good in the way of the impure. That which is evil is the food of bad people. If you teach them about doing good, they're not interested, but prefer to stay as they are because they don't see the harm in it. Without seeing the harm, there's no way things can be rectified. If you recognize it, then you think, oh, my whole pile of dung doesn't have the value of a small piece of gold, and you will want gold instead. You won't want the dung anymore. If you don't recognize this, you remain the owner of a pile of dung. That's the so-called good of the impure. Gold, jewels, and diamonds are considered something good in the realm of humans. The foul and rotten are good for flies and other insects. If you gather fresh flowers, the flies won't be interested in them. Even if you tried to pay them, they wouldn't come. But wherever there's a dead animal, wherever there's something rotten, that's where they'll go. Wrong view is like that. It delights in that kind of thing. What's sweet-smelling to a bee is not sweet to a fly. There once were two close friends. After they died, one was reborn among the gods of sensual enjoyment, while the other was born as a maggot in a pit of excrement. The god was endowed with various powers, and recalling his dear friend from the past life, he used his clairvoyance to find him. He transported himself to the excrement pit and was able to get his friend to recognize him. They were joyful at meeting again. The maggot asked the god, so what's it like where you were reborn? The god said, it's great. Nothing but pure enjoyment. Everything is clean and delightful. Whatever you wish for, it appears instantly. I hope you can go there with me. But the maggot started to cry because he pitied his friend. Listen, he said, life is so much fun right here. I play all day in this pit. I don't even have to wish for what I want to appear because it's all right here. You really ought to stay. This is the, this is, there is difficulty in practice, but in anything we undertake, we have to pass through difficulty to reach ease. In Dharma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, 
but we want to get around it somehow. It's similar to the way we don't want to look at old people, but prefer to look at the young and attractive. As I get older, I find old people are more interesting than when I was young. I remember Roshi Kaplow saying, uh, I think in an article that was written about him early on when he came back to the States from Japan, uh, <clears throat> he now could see the beauty in an angry face. Everything we, we see that we actually open our eyes to becomes beautiful. Everything is okay. As soon as you get rid of your preferences... You could say that when you get rid of your preferences, the great way becomes not difficult. He says, if we don't want to look at dukkha, we will never understand dukkha no matter how long we live. Dukkha, that is suffering, unsatisfactoriness, is truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we're trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. Working at it day after day, we can get through. When we encounter problems, we develop wisdom like, with, like this. Without seeing dukkha, we don't really look into and resolve our problems. We just bear with them or pass them by indifferently or try to ignore them. My way of training people involves some suffering because understanding suffering is the Buddhist path to enlightenment. He wanted us to see suffering and to see its origination, its cessation, and the path that brings about cessation. It's, of course, the Four Noble Truths. This is the way out for all the awakened ones. If you don't go this way, there is no way out. Supposing our habits creates some suffering. Uh, something we learn in the, anyone who's uh, participated in a term intensive probably run into this, especially if you tackle a big and difficult and persistent habit. It's hard work. The momentum of the mind is truly intimidating. It's awesome. It's the same with addiction. For someone to overcome uh, an an addiction like uh, alcoholism or uh, drug use or so many things, there's so many things you can be addicted to. For someone to overcome it, there has to be some suffering. If there's not suffering, then there's no motivation. And, of course, to somebody who's really caught up in drinking, let's say, you don't really notice a lot of the suffering. You're just, your life is crazy. But, you know, when things are crazy, you have your relief you can go to as long as it works. And so you keep drinking and creating trouble and then suffering and then drinking and you're in a endless cycle. And that usually doesn't resolve until things really go wrong, until you're forced to look at the situation that you're in. It's what they call an AA hitting bottom. And uh, I think there's really something to that. Everybody's bottom is different. I once uh, 
heard a woman whose bottom had been, she had been uh, wrapping presents to put under the tree for her family on Christmas morning, so they'd be there on Christmas morning, and she was drinking wine. And uh, she drank enough wine that she actually fell asleep under the tree. Everything was wrapped, you know. Um, She woke up, and she was so appalled that she joined AA and stopped drinking. I remember thinking, boy, that is that is a pretty high bottom. Uh, most people need to need to really get their nose rubbed in it before uh, before they're ready to change. <clears throat> it says generally we are afraid of suffering, and if something something will make us suffer, we don't want to do it. We are interested in what appears to be good and beautiful, and we feel that anything involving suffering is bad. But it's not like that. If there is suffering in the heart. It becomes the cause that makes you think about escaping. It leads you to contemplate. You will be intent on investigating to find out what is really going on, trying to see causes and their results. That's why it's promising when somebody takes up zazen or any form of meditation and suddenly runs into the difficulty of controlling their mind. They're dismayed, but uh, anyone who's instructing them is thinking, good, all right. Now you're beginning to see. It says, happy people don't develop wisdom. They're asleep. It's like a dog that eats its fill. After that, it doesn't want to do anything. It can sleep all day. Won't bark if a burglar comes. It's too full and too tired. I'm thinking of a certain dog in particular. <laughs> but if you only give it a little food, it will be alert and awake. If someone comes sneaking around, it'll jump up and stop, start barking. We humans are trapped and imprisoned in this world and have troubles in such abundance, and we are always full of doubt, confusion, and worry. This is no game. So there's something we need to get rid of. According to the way of spiritual cultivation, we should give up our bodies, give up ourselves. We have to resolve to give our lives to the pursuit of liberation. This is a good deal. We have to recognize our reluctance, but in the end, we need to give up. We need to bow all the way down. And we, what, what Ajahn Chah is getting at is to see the situation clearly, to see what we're trying to hang on to can't be hung on to to see that what we're giving up isn't real. There is no self. It's still hard to do. <clears throat> well, we've, uh, we've run out of time, so we'll uh, stop now and recite the four vows.